Well, okay. Good morning again, everyone. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Kevin. I love you. Oh, thanks, guys. I love you, too. <laughs> you're the best, Kevin. Oh, thank you. Oh, I think you're the best pastor in the world. Jeff, thank you. Oh, you guys are making me blush. Okay. Uh, man, I'm excited to preach this psalm. I really am. I want to um, <clears throat> just let you know we're starting Jonah in two weeks because if, if the merger goes through like we think God's doing, we want to start that new book altogether. So we are uh, figured some are psalms, do a couple psalms. And this is one that is a favorite and is a favorite of many people. In fact, I'm going to read a C.S. Lewis quote in a little bit, which uh, always impressed me, C.S. Lewis, and, and he loves this psalm. But I've never preached it, so I'm kind of excited to do so. I want to do a read-through this week. This psalm that we're going to read, Psalm 19, it was written by King David. And in your Bibles, you actually see a psalm of, of King David to the choir master. So this was written as a song. And it was a song that was taught to Israel and likely was sung every time they got together. It's a song that probably, most likely, theologians believe Jesus sang and knew by heart. So picture whatever song you like can remember being the first song you learned. I could imagine that that may be what it was for Jesus himself. And the Jews really think highly of this psalm, and I really do too. So let's read it in its entirety so we can kind of get the whole big picture and not lose it when we get into the details. Sound good? All right, Psalm 19. Here we go. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. <coughs> there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes through, out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The message of this text is fairly simple, and that is that God is revealed. God is constantly revealing himself. God is, period. One of my favorite names for God, and one that I spend much time worshiping and trying to process God over, is the name I Am. When Moses said, who do I tell him sent me? 
And God said, tell him, I am sent you. Because God just plainly is. He's not dependent on his creation. He's not dependent on anything. He just is and always has been and always will be. And when I worship God and think of that name, it freaks my brain out enough to know I'm worshiping something worthy because I can't quite get it. And yet I'm trying to, and it just, it makes me worship. I love that name of God. But the truth is the nature and the character of, of the creator are such that the created, we must acknowledge his existence and his divine nature. He demands a response. He's revealing himself in myriad ways and continues to do so. The two that David points out is, I think, probably the most obvious in our text today is that he reveals himself in his creation and in his word, and it demands a response. And through our proper response, God can actually reveal himself through us, through the created ones, through his worship and his worshipers. This psalm, again, I told you C.S. Lewis said something pretty special. Check this out. He said, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And C.S. Lewis wasn't just a, a theologian and Christian writer. He was actually a professor of literature at, I think, Cambridge and Oxford. This guy was smart and knew his literature. He said, this is one of the greatest lyrics that's ever been written ever. That's, it's a pretty big statement of what he's saying here. High praise from him. So here's the outline for today and just kind of sink this into your brain and, and let's get comfortable here. First of all, God reveals himself through his creation. Second of all, God reveals himself through his word. And then third, God reveals himself through his worshiper. God reveals himself through his creation, his word, and his worshiper. The great uh, preacher Alistair Begg, who I just love to listen to, Alistair Begg said the psalmist is going to invite us to look upward to creation. He's going to invite us to look downward into the good book. And he's going to invite us to look inward to see what our response to God is. And that's the invitation today. So let's look first at section one where God uh, reveals himself through his creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. David says, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. <coughs> the, um, the beauty of our five senses is I think they all point to God. But for for those of us who have sight, which is most of us, all we have to do is open our eyes to see God. And he's right there. You just look up and see it. The heavens above us are declaring it day to day. So we've got the blue sky. We've got the clouds, uh, the sun that's up there. They're all constantly declaring the glory of God. And that verb, as well as the coming verbs, they're written in, in uh, present and ongoing tense to signify the fact it's, it does it and it keeps on doing it constantly. It just keeps going and going and going. It's kind of fun. Uh, my sister uh, went on a camping trip uh, last year and invited the whole family to go. We all went out to Lake Cushman. Um, there was this great little RV place out there in Lake Cushman that we went to, created some fun memories. Well, this year, Sissy was going to go back, but nobody else from the family could go. My wife had to work, my sister, my parents, nobody could go. She goes, Kevin, you should still come out. I'm like, ah, okay, sounds good. Uh, I mean, I got a lot of work to do, but maybe I can work from a picnic bench. And, and so that's what I did. I grabbed Daisy on Wednesday afternoon, my puppy, 
she's a pretty big puppy now. But <laughs> Daisy and I jumped in my truck and grabbed the trailer, and we drove out to Dow Creek RV Resort, and we camped. And so I wrote this sermon under the sky. <laughs> it was pretty much as I'm looking at this verse, like, this is perfect. I'm looking at, the, at these gorgeous fir trees. I'm looking at the blueness of the sky and then the grayness of the sky and then the blueness because it was partly cloudy. And it was just gorgeous. This is really cool. In fact, in the evening, because it says night to night comes out too. In the night sky, you see the stars and the moon. My little niece, bless her heart, she's got a different memory than me. My memory is not good. Hers is apparently great because she remembered that last year we saw a star. It was really bright. It was actually a planet, but don't tell her. And we named it hereby. This star is is named Jim Bob Jim. Of course, because I'm weird and that's one of my things. So just embrace it. Jim Bob Jim. And the kids just thought that was hilarious. I didn't remember naming a star that was really a planet. Jim Bob Jim. I did. Once she told me, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah I think it was Jupiter or Saturn. It was out and it was super bright and we we're just having fun. And and there's Jim Bob. So, that, so my little niece is like, Kevin, Uncle Kevin, we got to see if Jim Bob Jim's out tonight. Got to see if Jim Bob Jim's out tonight. And the clouds were out. And then eventually the clouds went away and we could see the stars. We made up another one that's going to be Jim Bob Jim. And, and it was just gorgeous. Day to day and night to night, there's. There's this revelation of God. It's testifying to God. I think what I like about the night is it makes me realize how small I am. Because if I just saw myself in the light of the sun and, you know, I'm walking through my days as Kevin Pitts. And I remember as a child I was raised well and my parents just handed food to me and and I ate it. And they just gave me a place to live and, and I lived there. And when I needed clothes, they would just put them on my body and I would have clothes. And it's like, this world is great. It's like revolving around me right now. I mean, they wiped my butt when I was a kid. It was like I was a god. Well, that's kind of our perspective in this world is it it feels like what we can see is all there is. It's obvious at night. That there is so much that that we didn't see during the daytime. There's so much that's way out there that we can't comprehend and understand. And night to night, I think, reveals this knowledge about God, too, about his greatness and his power and his grandeur that the daylight doesn't even uh, acknowledge. But, man, all these things, the goal of them, King David says and God says, is to lead me to worship because of how big my God is. Not to just marvel at how big creation is, but to say, the creator of all that must be huge. He must be powerful. Because creation isn't simply beautiful and doesn't simply speak to itself. It's giving us knowledge, knowledge that's being given to our hearts of its wondrous creator. That's what it's trying to testify to. One of my favorite texts in Romans is Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 18. And I want you to if it's not if it's not too cheesy for you, close your eyes for a second. I want you to think about creation, and I want you to think about our mountain. You know our mountain, Rainier. I want you to think about the clouds and the sky and the expanse of it all, and think about what David has to, or not David, what Paul has to say in Romans chapter one about creation and our responsibility to listen to it well. 
He says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their own unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came fe- but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul knew what David knew, that when we divorce the creator from the creation, we're going to destroy our lives. We're going to destroy our society. And the society that comes from that place is an immoral one because the natural result of worshiping the creation rather than the creator is to go towards sin and immorality. And you only have to look around at our present-day culture and society to see it. He says, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. It's a, it's a paradox in the Hebrew it meant to call attention to the fact that, well, there aren't words, but really there are words. <laughs> Amazing things about God are being said by creation, but not really said, but yes, said. And kind of to get us going in that kind of beautiful poetic place. The testimony of nature writes volumes and and there's no stopping it. Um, Their words go to the end of the world, he says. Their voice is is great. We've got to worship the creator and not the created. In them he has set a tent for the sun. So as he's thinking of the heavens, he decides, I'm just going to focus on one um, powerful display of God's creative might that are in the heavens, and that's the sun. It's easy to focus on it because it's huge and it's powerful. And honestly, without the sun, there is no life. There's nothing that escapes its heat, and we don't have life on planet Earth apart from the sun. The sunrise is kind of what he goes to at the beginning here. Uh, and he describes it using two metaphors. The first one is he says that the sun rising is like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. So this is one of two things. Um, the first possibility is it's a picture of a groom on his wedding day. Like uh, his besties are outside his tent. And they're like, yo, Pitts, Kevin, it's time to get married. Wake up. Let's go. And I come out, you know, in my tux. They didn't have tuxes back then. But in my tux, and I'm like, yeah, I'm getting married today. And that kind of excitement and exuberance, you know, that readiness. Or this, the second possibility of what David might mean is a little more scandalous. So close your ears if you're sensitive to things that are scandalous. It could be a picture of the bridegroom leaving the wedding chamber as in they just consummated their wedding and he's coming out like yeah holy cow marriage is good that was amazing thank you god for that 
and just like coming out. Like, I can conquer the world now. And there's something about a man who's just made love to his wife. It really does feel like that. I can conquer the world now. There's nothing I can't do. And it's a wonderful feeling, a, God, a, a gift from God. And that could be the picture that he's, that he's looking at, too. It just depends on the theologian, how scandalous they go. The other uh, metaphor he uses is a strong man running his course with joy. <laughs> so picture this super ripped athlete, like in, in the starting shocks, and their feet are just ready, and they're poised, and the gunman's, gunman, the starting lady dude is like, ready, set, and they're poised. Bam, it goes off, and you just see the muscles flex. You see the spit flying from the face and the perspiration, and they're going and running the whole race all the way through. It's about precision and speed, agility and strength, and that is what David says the sun is like. Because, again, without it, all life would cease, but it comes, and it comes every day. We can rely on it. We know its strength will be there. The correct response to sunshine? Well, for me, it's fine shade. I'll be honest with you. Fine shade. I'm a Washington boy. It's really bright. Hurts my eyes. My, my, my father and my wife, are, they share a crazy love for the sun. And their, their response to sunlight is go find it and just bask in it. You might be either one, but the real correct response to sunshine is praise and adoration, and submission to the Creator. Because there is nothing hidden from the heat of the sun, just as there is nothing hidden from the God of the universe. Unfortunately, since the dawn of mankind, though, people have seen the sun's power and chosen to worship the sun rather than the Creator of the sun. And we can sit here and go, well, that's preposterous and ridiculous. The sun god, that's not a thing. We know scientifically it's gases and fumes and fire, and it's rotating at such and such miles per hour and all this. Worship the sun, that's preposterous. But we're just fine saying, well, science. Science has got it all figured out. We worship science rather than the author of science. We worship Mother Nature instead of the source of nature. We worship knowledge and puff ourselves up with it rather than he who is knowledge and from from whom all knowledge flows. We worship ourselves rather than our maker. Just because you don't worship the sun god doesn't mean you don't get your worship wrong from time to time. And no matter what it is, we, we've seen all the data, and yet we reach a wrong conclusion. So God, in his good mercy, revealed himself not only in his creation, but also through his actual words that we can trust, which is precisely where King David goes next. Section two is God reveals himself through his word. You may be a nature lover, but are you a Bible lover? He goes on, he has, what, six or seven of these um, descriptions of the law of the Lord, of the word of God, his rules, his precepts, who he is, what his morality is, and then describing what it's like. The law of the Lord, perfect. It's not that it's perfect apart from God, 
it's perfect because it describes God. God is perfection. So anything flowing from him, like his law, is perfection. We want to make sure we're measuring from the standard. The standard is God. So God's word is the source of knowledge of how to know him and his perfection. And if we could keep it perfectly, we would truly have revived souls every second of every day of our existence. Unfortunately, we still struggle. (laughs) Fortunately, we know from God's word that no man can perfectly keep God's perfect law. We'll talk about God's solution to that in a few moments. But we know that souls are revived by keeping the law. His testimony is sure, making wise the simple. It's sure. We can count on it. We can trust it. Society is constantly trying to convince us otherwise. We know better. The media knows better. Our culture knows better. Our feelings know better. But we can believe in the counsel of God's word. We can believe that he created us and that when we live as who we were meant to be, we can find peace. And those simple folk can become wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. To say that takes a true understanding of God, though, because to think of precepts as something that makes us rejoice. I don't, I don't know many of us that, that, that get a rule or a rule book or hear a bunch of rules and we're like, yippee, rules. Can't wait to follow them. I don't know that person. I haven't met him yet. I'm even a rule follower. I'm like afraid to get caught, afraid to get in trouble. Yeah, middle child syndrome. I got it. And yet still, I see a list of rules and I'm like, seriously, you don't think I know how to? drive a motorcycle with a helmet on? You have to make a law that I have to drive my motorcycle with a helmet on? Maybe if I'm an idiot and I want to die and want to not wear a helmet, I should be able to wear a helmet. I'm a libertarian, apparently. Seatbelt laws, you have to tell me that? I just want to break the rule just because it's a stupid rule. You shouldn't have to tell. You shouldn't be able to tell me I have to wear my seatbelt. This is ridiculous. It's preposterous. This is my normal response to rules. I think I know better. I don't need you to tell me. I don't want your authority. Rejoicing the heart. When we understand who God is, and when we understand that he wants the best for us and truly believe that, then his precepts are going to be the best possible way to live life. We can rejoice in his decrees and in rules. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens the eyes. Man, we are blind without God's word. We're blind to truth. We don't understand it. We don't know what's right. We don't know what's wrong. The very first sin of mankind was Adam and Eve eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Saying, God, I don't trust you to tell me what's good and evil. I should be able to determine for myself. I should be able to know what's good and what's evil. And we screwed that up, didn't we? Because even today, things that are evil, we say are just fine. And things that are just fine, we try to say are evil. And all around we go, we don't know what we're talking about. God's word, though, can be our true north. It can be true and sure and pure. And it can enlighten our eyes to who God is and what is right and what is wrong. The fear of the Lord is clean. My wife is a clean freak, and I don't quite understand it because I'm not. 
But I do know that after you've been camping with your puppy dog in the woods for a few days, and you get to go home into your own shower and take a nice cleanly shower, you feel good, right? You feel better. Like, oh, I'm filth is washed off of me clean. It's that kind of a feeling in the soul. When we fear the Lord, our souls are, are revived and refreshed. The fear of the Lord endures forever as well. The rules of the Lord are true. And they're righteous all together. Again, the proper response to God's written word and to his rules and his decrees, it, it can be and really should be joy, enlightenment, peace, even sheer jubilation. Sadly, Christians have begun to doubt the word of God. Let's think this through, too. If there's a God and there's a Satan, and we know that Satan's main goal is to take as many people, human beings, down with him as possible. He's going to suffer for eternity. He wants others to suffer for eternity because he's just that evil. If God sets up his word to instruct us, to enlighten us, to enrich us, to show us who he is. Don't you think Satan's going to come against that? <laughs> don't you think that's going to be one of his main strategies is to convince you and I that the Bible is irrelevant. It's dated. It's probably not even translated correctly. Can you really trust it? That's going to be his strategy. But if there really is this God who wants to reveal himself through his word, let's do another if then. If God, the all-powerful one, reveals himself through his word, his very words that are life for all those who would believe, don't we think he is powerful enough to preserve it and to protect it and to make sure when it gets into our hands in 2019, we can trust it? I need to have just as much confident faith in my God's power to preserve his written word that I can trust it as I do in the enemy trying to distort it. Both of those things are true. And honestly, they lead me to understand why everybody today wants to discount the word of God and why Christians need desperately to hold to it and to believe it and to live by it. I read an article this week. Um, are you guys fans of Skillet, the Christian band? Two or three of you? Yeah, awesome. Good band. Been around a long time. And um, I was really struck with the maturity of the lead singer. He was uh, being interviewed, and he was addressing the, the departure of a couple of young, very influential um, Christian leaders recently who have said, I'm leaving the faith in their own words. I, I really loved his response. He said this. He said, it's time for the church to rediscover the preeminence of the word and to value the teaching of the word. We need to value truth over feeling, truth over emotion. And what we are seeing now is the result of the church raising up influencers who did not supremely value truth, who have led a generation who also do not believe in the supremacy of truth, he reasoned. And now those disavowed leaders are probably still leading and still influencing boldly away from the truth. And his heart was just broken over this. And ours should be too. 
because God has revealed himself to us through his written word. It's our responsibility and it's our joy to bathe ourselves in it, to live by it, and to allow his word to be our very source, the source of truth and the source of life. More to be desired are they, the precepts, the laws, the rules, than gold, much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And I was convicted when I read this because I, I love nature, but, and I find pleasure in it. Do, but do I find the kind of pleasure that King David found in God's word? Where do I find my fulfillment, my, my happiness? How do I fill my spare moments? Can I truly say that I just treasure the word of God? Or am I finding it in my relationships and in my possessions and in my food and my drink and my entertainment? And I realize that I need to pray more and more for heart for God's word. And we need corporately to pray to be that we would be a church that loves and values God's word like David did and people individually and train that into our kids. And that will protect them from these wily arrows of the enemy saying, oh, it's probably not true. Oh, it's not relevant anymore. Oh, I know that's not how you feel. Let us also pray that we respond like David responds. Check this out. This is section three. God reveals himself through his worshiper or the response. (coughs) He says, by them, by the keeping of your words, is your servant warned. This is where I take my warnings from. Not from what the culture says is right and wrong. Not from what our feelings say are right or wrong. But from what God says is right and wrong. We're warned, he says, because great harm can come to us by living in sin. We need a warning. We need a cuidado, careful, achtung, peligroso, danger. There's some rough stuff out there. We need to be that warned about sin from the word and go, wait, shoot, I don't want to mess with that one bit. I don't even want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. And we're rewarded, David says, in keeping the laws of the Lord. God is so gracious that he gives us the ability to obey his laws. Then he empowers us to do so. Then he gives us rewards. Praise God. He's so generous. The problem is um, that we're really easy on ourselves. We need these warnings. And we listen to the warnings, and that's great and all. but, But we're really easy on ourselves when it comes to sin. We, we know all the reasons, we know all the excuses and all the, the motivations for what we've done. And we're really good at excusing away our sin. And David openly admits, he says, who can discern his errors? We're, we're not good at discerning our own errors. We stink at that. Is it, the answer he expects from his rhetorical question is nobody. Nobody can discern his errors in a vacuum. That's why we need God's word. And praise God, we also have Holy Spirit, don't we? Jesus Christ said, I'm going away, but I'm going to send a comforter. And he's going to be even better. Somehow he said the Holy Spirit was going to be even better because he lives inside of us. So Holy Spirit also helps me discern my errors. But Holy Spirit speaks, Scripture says, in a still small voice. And I'm a really busy guy. <laughs> I just am. We all are. How you doing? Busy. How's it been going? Busy. We all have that answer all the time. 
we're busy. We don't slow ourselves down. We don't listen for a still small voice. God forbid we slow down for a little bit <laughs> and saturate ourselves in his word for a while and let the Holy Spirit and God's word um, help us to self-analyze, help us to root out sin. David is crying out for help from God. He says, God, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Those things that are hidden from my own eyes. They might be hidden from all of you guys, but it's sin nonetheless. I don't want that in my life, David says. I don't want that to be in control. He keeps going. He says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. So first he talked about those hidden sins, the things we don't even know about. Then he's like, honestly, it's not just the hidden sins. I know myself. I'm also presumptuous sometimes. What do you think he meant by that? Presumptuous sins. Well, presumptuous sins are those sins where it's grievous. We should know better. And we go anyway. I was uh, I wanted to get a, a couple other people's thoughts on this presumptuous sins. And I, um, I ended up uh, coming across a Spurgeon sermon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Any, any lovers out there? He's a stud. Um. Check this out. He says, but oh, how much greater is the sin when man not only has the light of conscience, but has also the admonition of friends, the advice of those who are wise and esteemed by him. If I have but one check, the check of my enlightened conscience, and I transgress against it, I am presumptuous. But if a mother with tearful eye warns me of the consequence of my guilt, and if a father with steady look and with affectionate, determined earnestness tells me what will be the effect of my transgression. If friends who are dear to me counsel me to avoid the way of the wicked and warn me what must be the inevitable result of continuing in it, then I am presumptuous. And my act in that very proportion becomes more guilty. I should have been presumptuous for having sinned against the light of nature, but I am more presumptuous when added to that I have the light of affectionate counsel and of kind advice, and therein I bring upon my head a double amount of divine wrath. Well said. I think as Christians it's easy for us to say, oh yeah, I might be a sinner, but I'm not as bad as, as some sinners. But in fact, if, if you look at a text like this, it's the Christian who may be in most danger of committing presumptuous sin against our perfect, wonderful Savior because we know better and we do it anyway. We know what Scripture says, and yet we choose to ignore it. La, 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 Luna, I can't hear you. It's what we look like. It's, it's what we're acting like. It's quite silly and foolish, and yet we just go forward. We have friends and pastors and family members who, who've warned us about this, the results of sin and what, what it's going to add up to in our life, and yet we're like, I know better than all of them because I am smarter than them. We just push forward into things. Man, I was that kid in so many ways and that young adult in so many ways and still that adult in so many ways that had to learn the hard way. That's a presumptuous sin. I should trust those that have gone before me. I should trust the word of God. I shouldn't have to learn the hard way. It's presumptuous. And let me tell you what, one of the, one of the ways you can deflate me as a pastor the most is give me these, this line right here. I, I really just think God wants me to be happy. 
Because you know what's going to follow? What's going to follow is all the reasons why you're going to break God's commands and do what you want to do anyway. Because obviously God wants you to be happy and you think this thing is going to make you happy. I'm like, no, God wants so much more than that. If he only wanted you to be happy, he would have created this world of just utopia and unicorns and flowers. And Oh, wait, he did create a utopia, didn't he? But he also gave us a free will, and we screwed that one up. So now we live with the regret of sin and all the effects of it. It's not that God just wants you to be happy. God wants you to find your happiness in him and in holiness. You've, you've probably heard it before said, God doesn't want your happiness. He wants your holiness. But I'm saying it a little bit differently today. God doesn't want you to just be happy. That's, not, that's, that's too low a bar. He wants you to find your happiness in him and in holiness. Now there's a bar that's God-sized. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great, of great transgression. David, his true north... His goal was blamelessness. He didn't reach it till eternity. But that's where his true north was. That was his innermost desire, and that should be mine too. It's the only appropriate response to a creator who reveals himself to me in his creation and in his word. And then he ends with this, which I would say is one of the most beautiful prayers that each one of us should pray every day. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's start at the end of this prayer. He says, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Three beautiful titles. Lord, lordship essentially means saying you have mastery. You're the boss. I submit. You're the boss, God. My rock You're my foundation. You're the thing under my feet. The only thing that's solid. Jesus Christ is called the cornerstone, the most important, significant piece on which the whole house is built. My security is found in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Everything else around me can be shaking. But I look up to my master. I look down to see him as my foundation and my redeemer. We look to the cross and we see what Jesus did for us. To be redeemed means to be bought back. Because truly we can't hope to reach the perfection of the law in this life. We're going to fail. We have failed. We're in big trouble if it's up to us to clean up our lives enough to where we can earn our way into heaven. We can't earn it. We can never do it. We're hopeless. Jesus Christ said, I can earn it. I can earn it all for you. And so he paid the heavy price, the heavy cost of his life, taking on my shame and your shame so that we could be perfect with God and have eternity with him. That's the good news that we preach. That's the good news of the Bible. And that's the full revelation of God's word that King David didn't even have yet. And yet he's talking like this. We've been bought back. And Jesus Christ was the one that paid the debt. By belief in Jesus, we're we're redeemed and we're secure. And then the prayer is pretty natural to say, God, I'm so thankful for what you've done. I'm so thankful that you've redeemed me. I'm so thankful that you've given me a firm foundation. And I give you 
the title of Lord in my life. In fact, I want the words of my mouth and not just the words of mouth, but even the thoughts of my heart to be pleasing and acceptable in your sight for it to be worship. Because of what God did, we have so much to be thankful for. And now I love the one who loved me. Let's pray.